Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> awesome mad fellow he was. <laughs> Who did you think it was? Nay, I know not. <laughs> a pestilence on him for a mad rogue. <laughs> he poured a flag and a rainish on my head once. <laughs> this skull, sir, was to... Uh... Yorick's skull. The king's jester. This. Ian, that. Let me see. Yes. Poor Yorick. I knew him or I show. A fellow of infinite jest. Of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times. No. How abhorred in my imagination it is. My gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed. I know not how oft. Where be your jibes now? Your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar. Not one now to mock your own grinning. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. That was David Tennant in the title role of Hamlet speaking to the skull of Yorick, the jester of Hamlet's father. I am here, as always, with my two favorite Hamlet commentators, and they are... I'm Heidi White. I'm Andrew Kern. You guys, we've made it to Act 5 of Hamlet. Um, Something tells me it's not going to end without a body count. That's just my feeling. It's just my feeling. It's either that or a wedding. And I think that ship has sailed. It's either that or a wedding. You're exactly right, Heidi. It's either that or a wedding. Shakespeare is so predictable. Could be a dance. Much Ado About Nothing doesn't end with a wedding. No, Much Ado ends with two weddings. 
Two weddings. And they a dance. And a dance. They get, they do, well, there's the wedding, and then there's then there's um, Benedict says, "I want to get married too," and then they have the argument about let's should we should we wait till after or before, and they dance before the wedding. It but come on, that's harmony. a technicality. Harmony. Yeah, it is with harmony. You're like, come on, that's a quibble. Yeah, it is with harmony, certainly. That's, that's but Jesuitical. My, although, what? So that's Jesuitical. Jesuitical. That, that, like, that is saying that it doesn't end with a wedding. Your reason is Jesuitical. I've never heard that word before. That's so You don't great. know that word? Like, I do now. Fair. Yep. Overly, overly given to parsing and... Um, Hyperscholastic. So I would, yeah, hyperscholastic I would, my, and a little my, my bit dad used to say, Andrew, you're so pernickety. And I'd say, dad, the word's persnickety. But the, the, <laughs> but the, but the thing is, okay. It's Shakespeare. If he, if he has them dance before they get married, there's a reason it's not just Jesuitical. It's it's, there's a reason. And so. All right. Well, let's save it for the much of podcast. However, yeah, that doesn't end with wedding or dance. It's definitely death. Yes. Death permeates this entire act. Yep. The act begins with Hamlet's return uh, from England. And as he's returning to the castle, he kind of happens upon these two grave diggers. The two grave diggers we find out are, I mean, this. let's just imagine this. You stumble upon two grave diggers and who are they giving who are they digging the grave for? We discover for Ophelia, for poor Ophelia, who has drowned. Hamlet hasn't seen her, of course, since he left. Presumably there's been no contact and that he left her under extremely tortured circumstances, I think in love with her. The rest of the act is very, um, gets immediately to the point there's a proposed fencing duel between the brother of Ophelia Laertes. He's been commissioned by the King to finally do Hamlet in. And so he has a poison tipped foil that he is going to use in this fight with Hamlet. And all he needs to do is nick him and the job is done. So that's where we're headed. That's the great climactic finale of Hamlet. But I, I want to start with this scene. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him well, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest. This is one of those scenes that is almost, for me, it has like kind of a silhouette um, that presents itself in my mind with Hamlet holding the skull of Yorick. And it's an unforgettable scene. For me, and I want to hear you guys like reflect on this. For me, it's this juxtaposition between Hamlet, excuse me, between Yorick as the jester, the man of a thousand jibes, who was employed to make the court laugh, who apparently loved Hamlet, would dawdle Hamlet on his knee. And to be introduced to him decades after his death, when the last time that Hamlet saw him, he saw him, his, his lips would kiss Hamlet. He would, he would tease Hamlet. He would make jokes with Hamlet. And now Hamlet it sees him as a worm cleaned skull. And that juxtaposition for me between the frivolity of who he used to be 
and now staring at kind of like the vacant eyed skull of York is just a masterpiece of masterpiece of stagecraft. Does that, does this scene really affect you guys when you see read hear Hamlet? Is this one of those scenes for you guys? Certainly. When, when I was a boy, I grew up in Milwaukee and there's a museum on the lakefront in Milwaukee that has a great big, as I recall, life-size painting of a monk holding a skull. And I didn't know anything about, Mm. you know, monastic disciplines or anything when I saw that, but immediately, even as what, maybe 14, 15 years old, as soon as I saw that, I just wanted to stand there and stare at that painting. I, I, I didn't know there's this thing called memento mori, right? It's a, it's a spiritual discipline where you hold a skull in your hand and you contemplate death. Mm. I didn't know that that's what that was. I, in fact, I probably thought it was something out of, well, Harry Potter hadn't come out yet, but I would have thought that it was something out of Harry Potter. Right. So that's how narrow while my mind was. So that was my first encounter with somebody holding a skull and, 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 and contemplating. And Andrew, it wasn't a painting of Hamlet. It was kind of a painting of a monk the, of a monk. Okay. Okay. Yes, of a monk. And if you go online and, and, and look up Memento Mori, it'll probably come up. It's a, it's a fairly famous painting. I have learned since then. Um, so, so um, that was my, that was my first encounter of a person holding a skull and thinking about death. Mm. So when then I saw Hamlet, which I encountered first as a movie, and, and I saw Hamlet holding the skull of Yorick, mm. that immediately, you know, that was my background to that it. Connected. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the, and the thing, the two, a few things come out about that. One is that I was drawn to that just because it was there. It's, there's something so primal about, about that direct gazing on, let's say death, the, the direct the direct ref- reflection on death. It's not something we do a lot of. And, and secondly, when I think about it, I don't know that that monk knew whose skull he was holding. And that's pretty significant. It, it may have been that it was the skull of a, you know, a former, co- a former mentor or something, I, but I, it doesn't, the, the picture doesn't indicate one way or another. And I don't know if what the, the tradition would, would be, would require, but, but Hamlet does. And so not only is he contemplating death in the abstract, let's call it, but he's talking, he's contemplating the death of a person that he knew and loved. Mm -hmm. And all of us have to do that at some point, but not many of us, not many of us do that at the grave of the person that we knew and loved Mm -hmm. and then hold that person's skull in our hands. And there is something unbelievably provocative in some sense, uh, something you can't, you can't. Okay. I, I think when people see this scene, when I, when I encounter the scene, one of two things will happen to me. One is I won't want to get absorbed in it and I'll just keep going and, you know, not let it affect me because I got to get a grade or something. The other is it'll stop me. Right. And then, and then you start, you start thinking deeper and deeper about Hamlet and what Hamlet is saying about death and about death itself. And so, and it becomes, and, and Hamlet and Shakespeare through Hamlet brilliantly kind of draws everybody into doing this spiritual discipline of contemplating death. And it's entirely up to us how far we go with it. So that was, that's how, that's how it, 
that's how it tends. That's how right now it, it affects me, but honestly, it affects me differently every time. Every time. Yeah. I think that's really important. And I, I think this particular time I was moved for, for Hamlet in the sense that this is a play that is like death permeates the entire thing. Like it's woven into the fabric of the play that death in the future, death in the past, like Hamlet's father's death that has already happened. The death of Claudius that he's, that, that Hamlet is like, is his doom, right. And is his fate to, uh, to cause the death of another human being. And, and then, Ophelia's death and I think that's that is particularly poignant that we know there's this dramatic irony happening in this scene that we know Ophelia is dead and that that's whose grave they're digging and yet Hamlet doesn't know and so he's so moved by the death of this man he knew as a child how is he going to react then we wonder as the audience when he Mm. knows that the grave that's being dug and he's just had these like sparring words with the clown. Uh, how is he going to know that? How is he going to react when he finds out that this is his love and, and that yeah. he's contributed to her death. Right. Yeah. And, 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 the, and that death and we're in act five. So another thing is the audience we know is that death is coming for Hamlet soon, soon. Soon he's going to be the guy whose lips are falling off his skull, right? And so there's all of this kind of universal contemplation of death. You brought up, the, you know, the spiritual practice of memento mori, I remember death. And also there's within the play, there's this kind of hanging sense of doom uh, that that has been coming throughout the play and is now about to happen. We are about to see kind of this like dark flower of death, you know, come to fruition uh, for Hamlet and for everybody around him. And he's holding a skull in his hand, Mm -hmm. thinking about death. mm -hmm. It's, it's such a powerful scene on the universal level and on the personal level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just, you just triggered a thought in my mind. I got to ask a question. Remember the play that Ham that that Hamlet puts on at the beginning of it. There's a there's a um, a, a dumb act, like a, a preface. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay. And and that dumb show then is played out in the rest of the play, right? And even the dumb show is preceded by a little statement that says, "Here's the story." And then Hamlet says, "Is this the preface or the posy of a ring?" Right? Like that that was so short. Is is that what Shakespeare's doing now? is he's giving us a dumb show of the rest of act five. Oh, that's good. I like that. I've always thought that this whole scene is, has this, or excuse me, this whole act has this um, kind of like smaller microcosm of drama that is weightier than even the rest of the play, which isn't light. You know what I mean? Like Act right. five is yeah. so intense. As you, as you just said, Andrew, you can go as far as you want into it as the audience. If it's too much for you, you can kind of pull out. And he gives us some moments of comedy even within, like, I think the best comedy the in beginning the whole of play scene. is in this act. Absolutely. Like the Osric comedy, the clown comedy. Like, so you can kind of, pull out if you want to but even in the comedy there's such depth of insight like the the conversation between the clowns about which is you know who's the best builder and which is the safest houses right it's mm-hmm. the house of death and and that's you know the punchline of the joke but also 
like maybe the punchline of the joke of human life question mark right so there's there's just such intensity within this scene what about you tim what do you make of that york scene i I just want to comment about um the playful interchange between the grave diggers there's just this really really funny scene these two guys are digging you know uh first grave digger. There's no ancient gentleman, but gardeners, ditchers, and grave makers. They hold up Adam's profession. Other. Was he a gentleman? He was the first that ever bore arms. Why he had none. Why art thou a heathen? How dost thou understand the scriptures? The scripture says that Adam digged. Could he dig without arms? This is all making a joke that because he had arms, thus he was a gentleman because he like had a coat of arms. It's really clever stuff. By the way, parents, if you ever have a couple of kids that you want to introduce to a Shakespeare scene, I think the interplay between the grave diggers, especially if the kids can understand what they're saying, the kind of humor, that's a great one to start with just over the dinner table. That'd be a fun one to kind of rehearse and play. Yeah. um, The York scene is... it's one of my favorites in the whole canon and the universality of death is so powerful. I mean, in Hamlet's sitting with his skull, he thinks first about missing his friend, you know, the jester York, the man he knew. And then he goes in this long discourse about, wait, this could have been a lawyer. And if he was a lawyer, he would have lived this sort of life. Why this might've been a, a, a businessman. And if he was a businessman, he might've sold this sort of property and that sort of property. And he kind of cast this wide net around kind of like all of the potential professions that this person could have been. He happened to be a jester. And you're caught in that net. You're swept up in that net and you can't help. It, it reminds me so much of the very middle of the play, to be or not to be, the discourse on all of the reasons why we would want to leave life because of all of the harms, the laws delay, the pangs of despised love, all of these things are kind of temptations for us to leave death. And yet we don't leave death because of this worry about what's beyond the grave, the undiscovered country. I just think that this scene is playing that theme with such expertise and tenderness surrounded by great humor at the front end surrounded by incredible pathos at the back end discovering this is Ophelia's grave, you know? Um, And in her grave, we are going to discover that we have another enemy that we have to face Laertes the angry brother of Ophelia, the son of the deceased, the, well, killed by Hamlet, Polonius. You know, we're thrust. It's just, it's just remarkable. It accomplishes so much in, you know, seven thrifty pages. It's just stunning to me. Every time, every time I encounter the scene, I'm just stunned by it. Um, I do want to talk about, I want to talk about Ophelia do we do we know for sure now at the grave of Ophelia that Hamlet truly did love her? He, he, she was not merely a plaything. Or is that after this scene, is that still a question 
for us? Heidi? I, I just find this question so fascinating. It's as, as we've talked about so many times on this podcast and in offline conversations about Hamlet, this is one of the greatest works of literature in the history of the world. And it seems relatively straightforward when you first encounter it. And then you start thinking about it. And this is Mm. one of those questions that I find endlessly mysterious. Did Hamlet really love Ophelia? His response to her death is so strong. He doesn't know she's dead. And so at her grave, he jumps in and he wrestles with her brother and he claims 40,000 brothers could not love her as I loved her. And it's so moving. And he's just had this contemplation of death. And there's just this like uniting in the grave of the over this like primal wrestling between jealous men. It's just such a Mm. powerful image Mm. over the body of this woman. And yet, man, Hamlet was so unkind and callous towards her in life in this play and or was he right and just so their relationship is just so complex and his response to her death seems simple but when you start thinking about it I'm not so sure there's I I can't I'm not satisfied because he expresses no remorse no sense, like there's no statement of repentance that comes from Hamlet. I was a party to this. I was like, he doesn't Mm. ask any questions about himself and his role in her life. He just claims that he loves her and wrestles with Laertes and apologizes for it later. Like I, I'm, I am not convinced that Hamlet bears the full weight of his responsibility toward Ophelia. I think he feels sincere grief. That's not a question because that's an, that was a spontaneous response. Like he feels grief, whether or not that grief comes from, I, 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 let me say it this way. The nature of their relationship in the interactions between them in the play leads me to believe that a statement of true love from Hamlet would require some repentance from him and I don't see it. In the moment, in the emotions of the moment, I, I say, I totally understand this response. It, it's hard for me to imagine Hamlet as introspective as he is having the ability both to recognize, Oh my goodness. I've just seen York. I just lost Ophelia. I, and I, I think he loved her. Mm-hmm. And to be able to kind of also in the same moment recognize that he had a hand in his death, that seems even too much for Hamlet in this moment. 20 minutes later, walking home with Horatio, maybe, but our camera's kind of off him at that Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Does it make sense, Heidi? Absolutely. I, I I, I don't quibble necessarily over that. And I do believe that he loved her. I just, I wish that there would had been a moment of like, God have yeah. mercy on me for what happened to this woman. Yeah, right. Because no doubt he bore a huge responsibility in it. This is, yeah. But I don't know, Andrew, Andrew thoughts on this? As we're talking about this right now, I, I left a, a, a reading that the team is doing here of a book that's coming out very soon called Good in Everything. 
Meditations on Shakespeare by Josh Mayo, and that'll be released within a, you know around not long after this recording is up. So people might be interested. The reason I mention is because he has a chapter in that book on Henry V, in which he he compares Henry V to a duck rabbit. And the idea is that if you look at Henry V as a duck, you'll see a duck. And if you look as a rabbit, you'll see a rabbit, but you can't see both at the same time. Can I, can I say a little bit more about that, Andrew? Just that there's a, there's a line drawing that was made. It was kind of made popular by a philosopher named Wittgenstein. It's a line drawing that's very, very simple. And it really is. If you, if you say, look at it, it's a duck, you'll see a duck. And if you say to yourself, look at it, it's a rabbit. You you'll just see have to change the orientation. So if it's yeah. horizontal, it's a rabbit. If it's vertical, it's a duck. And so as oh, I don't even you think you need see. to do, no. see, I don't even think you need to do that. I just think it's like, it's, it's, it's what your mind kind of presupposes you to look for. Doing. Anyway, yeah, I, I, why so. am I taking us all off track? Why am I taking us on a because, rabbit and duck trail? Because whether it's perspective or expectation, when you read Henry V, you see what you expect to see. And my contention would be that that's also the same with Hamlet, that, that you can't see both at the same time if there's two. There's, I mean, there's 28 Hamlets, but you can't, you can't see all of them at the same time. So when you read it, you see what, what you're ready to see on that read. And that's why it requires multiple reads. Like all in the old days, you have slides, remember that overheads and you'd lay one transparency on top of another to, to reveal more and more text, textu textuality. One of the things that might be worth mentioning is Hamlet's words. Was it when he was about to torment Gertrude or was it, I forget who said it, but it's the old cruel to be kind. Basically, I, I must be, I must be cruel but only to be kind. I forget his exact wording, but it became a pop song in the eighties. Well, what, yeah. what if, what if that's yeah. entirely what he's had to do with the Philias? He had to be, he had to be cruel in the circumstances in order to be kind to her. If that's what you're expecting to see, that's what you'll see. And if you're expecting to see, he's just a jerk, he's cruel. You got all the evidence in the world for that. And so when I, when I think of um, Hamlet's response to Ophelia, does Hamlet love her? I, it's hard to imagine he doesn't in some way love her, intensely even. And and is he also cruel to her? It's hard to argue that he's not cruel to her. And then it becomes a, but was it okay to be cruel to her? And then it becomes, well, what's his role in society? And then just climbs up this, mm -hmm. as he kind of plays with it, the, the, there becomes this heap that you climb up, this mountain that you climb up. And maybe that mountain that you have to climb up to understand Hamlet is precisely the mountain that buries him under itself in, in his in his appeal, when he says, let, let 20, let, let the mountains be buried. Uh, you, you and me, Laertes, let's be buried under these mountains, right? Maybe that's an echo of that, that there's just the weight of reality and Hamlet can't bear it any more than anybody else can. And so he cracks. And because he cracks, we have all these different Hamlets because right? he's cracked. But that's, yeah. that's why we used to say to people when, really we, like when we meant they were crazy, we'd say you're cracked, right? So, so, but there's one last thought that I want to add here, which is that it, there is reason to believe that in act five, we have the most whole, is that the word Hamlet, the most whole Hamlet that when he went to England, he had this experience. It was like going to hell. And now he's coming back to the, to the land of the living. He's gone through death. 
But if that's the case, then why, when he's gone through death and gets back to to Denmark, does he go to a grave? Right? Is it is he is, is this a symbol of resurrection or a hint of what's coming? He does later on seem very much resigned to to what's coming. He seems fuller, but I don't I don't know. I think that's a great question. Now I'm going to play a little audio um, of a conversation after we leave Ophelia's grave and we're getting ready for the fencing scene, the climactic scene of the entire play. Hamlet and his best friend Horatio kind of steal away and Hamlet is recounting what happened to him and what he did while he's on the ship to England. Um, Let's play this audio. This will be David Tennant again um, in the role of Hamlet. There's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough hew them how we will. That is most certain. So, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. My man, they did make love to this employment. They are not near my conscience. Why, what a king is this? Does it not, thinks thee, stand me now upon? He that hath killed my king and whored my mother, popped in between the election and my hopes, thrown out his angle for my proper life and with such cousinage. It's not perfect conscience to quit him with this arm. But I am very sorry, good Horatio, that to Laertes I forgot myself. When our deep plots do pall, and that should teach us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. This, coming from Hamlet, to me is a signal that something has really changed. Andrew, you referred to this right before we heard that audio. Something has changed when he's been gone. The question for me is, is it a, like a world weariness that he's now accepted, like a, a callousness? Or is there a peace, like a genuine soul deep peace that he has arrived at before he goes in to basically face his death? And I think he knows it. Do, do you lean? I'm, I'm going to ask you this first, Heidi, and then I'm going to come to you, Andrew. How do you read Hamlet at this part of the play? Is it is it callousness? Is it some sort of peacefulness that there is a divine will that shapes our ends? Yeah, I. <laughs> this may be the hardest question of Hamlet for me to answer. And with any kind of sincerity, I am completely completely 100% on the fence on this. And I think that to go back to the rabbit duck picture, which you're right, you don't need to change the orientation. I was remembering it wrong. Um, I I think that, you know, one of the accusations that's often leveled against Shakespeare is that he's an equivocator, right? Like he doesn't take a stand, he presents one side and then the other, and nobody knows where he stands on political issues or faith or whatever. I think that's a sign of his greatness. I do not believe that he's an equivocator at all. Um, I, I just think he is aware of the mystery of being human and writes that into his plays so brilliantly and most brilliantly of all in Hamlet, because I think with Henry V, and I, I'm, I don't want to take the conversation off, but Josh Mayo's point in Henry V is is valid, right? Like you can either look at at Henry, Prince Hal, having become a king as uh, 
it was kind of a manipulative ploy and and that he was playing the system and that he is, you know, just like his father. Or you can look at, at the other way, that he's a sincere desiring to be a Christian king, right? The mirror of all Christian kings. And, but the truth is, is that however you stand, he's either one or the other. It's different with Hamlet. With Hamlet, he's not a rabbit or a duck. He's like a rabbit duck, like a drabbit. <laughs> so that's, I, I look at this question of where, where does Hamlet stand at the end? Is he in peace of soul or is he in just this despair and callousness? And I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a drabbit. So, um, so can, I, can I say this back to you, Heidi, yes. to see if I understand? Because I think this is really insightful. If you're staging Henry V and you're the director or you're the actor playing You kind of have v, to pick a lane. Yes, you have to pick a lane. And you can, we could probably say the same thing about maybe Richard II. Um, wait, mm-hmm. we said, I, I, we're talking about Henry V. We could also yeah, print, you could like make the same sort of decision about- With many, um, many, especially in the in the history plays, with many of, of the characters, you, you have to pick a lane. It's either you're going to, the actor is either going to have to be a rabbit or a duck. Yeah. And and that's with, with Hamlet. Yes. Anyway, keep going. So- You're trying to Hamlet, say my words back at me and I'm just right. trying to say them again. <laughs> that's rude. So- <laughs> <laughs> What I hear you saying is the lane you kind of have to pick if you're going to direct or play Hamlet is you have to pick the middle lane. You have to embrace both of these aspects of Hamlet. And it would be a poor choice to just say, no, he's this great titanic existential hero who <laughs> um, makes all the right choices. It's it would also be the wrong lane to say. To right. Right. Yeah. It was, it was inevitable. It was only a matter of time. Or, um, he is this kind of like broken, corrupted, you know, maligned and maligning figure who does more harm than good. To just play one role or the other role would be to say duck or rabbit. You have to kind of like embrace both of these things. I, but what's interesting, I mean, I'm not an actress. You're an actor. So I would really be curious, but it, so despair and peace are opposites there. Mm. They, they cannot coexist. Right. And meaning, well, that's, that's not my point. This is complicated. They can coexist in the same soul, but they are, they are opposites. But if you're watching it play out from the outside, despair and peace might look the same right? It might look like resignation to fate, which is what we have in Hamlet here in this Mm. scene. He's going to go into this fight. He has a sense that he's going to die and he does it anyway. He fulfills his purpose. He kills Claudius, right? And so happy ending, exclamation point. Right. But that's too simple. That's not what we have in this scene. Like there's, there's this um, vacillation in his soul that we see, like he doesn't, for you know, he doesn't express repentance over Ophelia's death, um, and we can't tell whether his apology to Laertes is sincere. He claims, "I only killed your dad out of madness," but the whole time he says that he wasn't really mad, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there is this equivocation, and the word is even used in this scene. So, like you said, you can interpret Hamlet as 
just kind of this despairing, whatever, I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to go to my death, like making claims along the way and missing out on opportunities to make things right. Right. Or, but he says there's a divinity that shapes our ends and then he actually does fulfill his purpose. And he had, so it's, man, it's complicated. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to want to hear from the two of you. Andrew, I'm going to slightly change the question that I gave to Heidi and maybe make it even harder. If we, if you had to predict, predict Hamlet's trajectory, let's imagine that he's not killed in act five based on what we see previous to the fencing match. What's his trajectory? Is it toward maybe despair, callousness? Is it toward an acceptance of the divine ends? Would you be willing to make a wager on that? If If he survives um, the fencing match, what do you think his trajectory would be? Well, this is why Fortinbras is so important to this Oh, gosh. <laughs> if you didn't listen to Act Four, now you need to rewind and like listen yeah. to us haggle that about. That was yeah. amazing. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> because Fortinbras has an opinion, and I'm inclined tentatively to agree with him. He 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 is like to have proved most was it royal. I think that Hamlet, having being his son, being the son of Hamlet. And being through what he's been through, if he came out of this experience alive and being the king, he would certainly have had, he would certainly have had control over the court. He would have, every opponent would have been removed. And given all the things that he's had to process, the hell that he's been through, the Hades and back, the resurrection he's encountered, because you remember, he was supposed to be beheaded. The king did send mm. him to England to be beheaded with a message saying, behead this guy. Um, but he conquered death. So given all of that, if he doesn't suffer a complete breakdown, I think he would probably be a good king. But why are you asking that question? Is it because you don't want my opinion about the other one? About, about the other one? What do you mean the other one? The earlier question about peace and resignation. And no, no, no. Despair. I would like that. It, to me, asking about his trajectory is another way of asking that same question. It's, it's sort of like we don't get oh, to see okay. it play out with him, like yeah, peace yeah. or callousness. Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of asking a predictive okay, so, question. So, yeah. So in, in order to think yes. about that, you're saying, okay. So, so I, I think that, um, one of the things that's become uh, data-driven, or a da- their da- how do you say it? It's become demonstrable through data, is that people with a religious foundation handle stress better, mm-hmm. and people people who believe in something um, endure disappointment and trial better, generally speaking, than mm-hmm. people who don't. And and therefore, the crucial question becomes: Has as it was put, has Hamlet? reach some kind of neutral despairing resignation or has he reached some kind of zen yeah, <laughs> right. of acceptance or 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 faith has he has he become mm-hmm. a man of faith and i don't know again but i noted a couple things 
while we were while you guys were chatting and I was listening but also skimming, he does all of a sudden start talking to it. Well, I don't know if he did this earlier in the play. So what I notice in Act Five is that he does talk about the line that you got brought up that there's a divinity that shapes our ends. Okay, and also in line eighty. Oh, I lost it. But anyway, um, heaven, heaven was ordinant. Line 54. Even in that was heaven ordinant. Heaven ordered things. Yeah. Right? And then, and then um, in, 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 in there, in that in act five, scene one, he's, as he's reflecting on death, he does seem to be doing it in light of the existence of a mm-hmm. deity and in light of another transcendent realm. Whereas he talks about Alexander and he talks about Yorick um, pushing, pushing his materialism, let's say, or pushing his naturalism, pushing that, that cynical assumption about existence all the way to its very mm-hmm. edge. When he says, to what base uses we may return Horatio, right? He says we, but he's referring to our body. So it's utterly reductionistic. Why may not imagination trace the noble dust of Alexander till he find it stopping a bunghole, which is, you know, a, a beer beer barrel, a hole in a beer barrel, something like that. And Horatio's response is, twere to consider too curiously to consider it so. And in the most ironic two words in the book, maybe, Hamlet says, no, no faith. faith. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then proceeds to think about it in materialistic terms, right? But, but by the end, he's at least opened up the possibility that there's another way to think about this, right? And if, and if you come to hold a skull in your hand to contemplate death and you have the guts to do that for an extended period of time, and you conclude that the only significance of this is that Alexander the Great might well have become a cork, right? Then, then that's despair. Yeah. And that might lead you to resignation. And if you accept that completely, I don't know if you can, but if you accept that completely, then you might enter into a, a, a sort of, yeah, a Zen state, right? But if, but if, you, but if you break through that and, and your soul is brought into the, the perception of the eternal, okay, then that's a completely different mm-hmm. matter. And does Hamlet go one way or the other? I like to think that Hamlet attains faith. Mm-hmm. I like to think that, that, that he that he's serious when he, what he says to Horatio about, you know, the readiness is all. Yeah. I like to think that's what he's coming. I like to think so too. And, and maybe this point in the play is where that decision is actually like being formulated in him, you know, Hmm. maybe Hmm. act five is where it's all like, we're, we're catching him kind of in the scene where, um, Claudius is praying and he's asking for mercy. And after that, he Mm -hmm. shifts from sort of like dark to demonic, you know, beautiful. Like maybe there's, maybe this is where, where we are with Hamlet. This is like the moment of decision. And we, I want him to choose the life of faith. I kind of think he, I kind of think he does. If I had to bet on his trajectory, I kind of think he does. Well, that's why it becomes a comic ending, but, but, so, so the very first line in Act Five, the first, first two lines. I wonder. This might sound irrelevant, but it's not. I, I don't think it is. Is is when the grave digger, the clown, says to the other clown, "Is she to be buried in Christian burial 
when she willfully seeks her own salvation. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, you talk about ironic, willfully seeking so her own good. Like, What a great line. What an absolutely right? great line. Yeah. So here's my question. How does Ophelia willfully seeking her own salvation or not? Because we don't know. Right. But how does how does that line juxtapose? That's the word, Tim, you've used a few times, which is a cool word. How does that line juxtapose with Claudius's prayer mm-hmm. and Hamlet's not not killing Claudius? And then to make it more complicated still, how does it also compare with Hamlet going all the way through to, to being willing to die himself, thus willfully seeking his own salvation in the duel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that that's a really just an incredible question. Shakespeare seems to go to great lengths in this play and particularly in act five to remind us of the sacramental structure of death, that there are, that there is this kind of framework of sacramental reality that ushers souls into the afterlife. For example, Ophelia having committed suicide, maybe question mark, right? That's, that's, there, there are people who think it was an accident, right? But it, it, it's not told, but it is strongly implied that it was suicide. In that case, then she shouldn't have a Christian burial and that would be an obstacle to her entry into the kingdom of God. And uh, that would be something that had to be overcome in in the afterlife. That's also true with uh, Claudius. Like we're reminded of that sacramental structure of the reality of death with Claudius when he's praying in the chapel. Uh, we are again reminded of it through a couple at the at, in the final scene with all the death happening, right? Um, and oh, and we're even reminded of it in Act Five when he's talking about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He says specifically that the letter tells them to not to kill them immediately so that they are unshrived, so they are unable to make a final confession. Right. And so it would have been understood to an Elizabethan audience what's at stake here. Um, for modern Christians, we kind of lose that or see it as superstitious or, or, or tangential to the conversation in Hamlet. But it's not tangential. It's embedded within the conversation. Are these souls going to get to go to heaven after they die? Death is not just death. Right. There, there is a st- a sacramental structure that guides and guards the transition of the soul from life to death. And so uh, in violating the, those rules, so to speak, that sacramental structure, there's, there are consequences, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And Hamlet is very aware of that and, and, and takes it into consideration. And, and we as the audience ought to, I think, enter into that, even if we don't see that as even modern Christians who kind of have, have stripped that sacrament from death, that sacramental framework. I think in order to understand the true pathos of the story, we have to put a little bit of time and effort into accepting the terms of that within the play Mm. Um, that, that it does indeed matter that Ophelia has committed suicide and, and what Hamlet is grieving at her death is not just her loss, but the fact that she, that, that in her death, she may 
have eternal consequences in the manner in which she died. Right. And that, that is important to the story. Yeah. Um, and Im- definitely important here in this act. And Shakespeare seems to go to great lengths to remind his audience, like, pay attention, pay attention. This is not just about becoming a bunghole, right? Like there's, mm. there's mm. the soul and its transition into death has, there are, you know, there's something at stake in how people die. I want to transition us into the final scene. Um, I've got a couple of questions. I want to know what you guys think about Gertrude's decision to drink mm-hmm. the poison. So, um, and then I would like some closing thoughts about Hamlet's final words. I, I do want to tell a little story. I, I just want to, Hamlet, the, the, I played Hamlet. We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. The role is so grueling. I cannot mm-hmm. tell you how grueling it was. And I just want to, I was just remembering this transition between Ophelia's graveside and the fencing scene. I would come on stage and it's, you know, a three hour production and I would be so exhausted. And I had to kind of explicate what happened on this boat coming back from England, what Hamlet did and, you know, what, what happened to uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And it's just exposition to Horatio. And I know that on the other side of this exposition is I've got to go to war with a sword in my hand. The guy who was playing Laertes in our production was <laughs> special forces. He was trained in special forces. He was an absolute athlete, like highest order. And I had been training physically to play this role, like really hard for three months. I think I lost 20 pounds. I was like slim and I was, you know, strong. Cause I, I mean, I had to be. Okay. The interlude opening night, we did the fencing scene and there's a scene in which Hamlet kind of gets tripped into, you know, it, it's part of the choreography. I get tripped and I fall and I'm supposed to kind of roll out of it. I don't roll out of it. And I land right on the point of my hip. I yeah. mean, right on the point of my hip on that hard stage, but I don't think anything about it aside from, Oh, that's smarted. And then we get up and we finish the scene. Next day, my parents fly in town because they want to see me perform Hamlet. I go pick them up at the airport. Number one, I cannot speak because I use my voice so poorly on opening night. I was so nervous to get through the play and get all the lines out that I was like, my register was way up in my throat. I wasn't breathing from my belly. Like what I always teach my students, I failed in everything that I taught them. So I was way up in my throat and I show up, pick up mom and dad at the airport and we go to a subway restaurant and I say, mom, you've got to order for me. Cause you know what I like. <laughs> and she's like, how are you going to play Hamlet tonight? I was like, I don't know, but I'm going to, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And I'm limping the whole time. And the fall swelled into this. I cannot tell you how horrific it looked. It was like half a softball on my right hip. And it throughout the performance, you know, during the following weeks that we had performed this play, all of the bruising would kind of like fell down my right leg and my right leg for probably half the performance was like green and black. It was incredible. And I had to fall on it every single night. I just want to shout out to like 
all the people that have played Hamlet know, like, it's so grueling. It's not getting up and like saying some lines. It just demands everything. Yeah. Um, we get to the final fencing scene and we know it's going down. We know that the daggers are poisoned. One of the daggers is poison tipped. We know that there is poison in one of the chalices. It's everything is primed for court to fall. In the scene, Gertrude drinks from the poison chalice. And there's a question, I think, about whether or not she knows what she's doing. And I want to know if you guys have an opinion about this. Um, Because it really, I think, is going to shape what we think about Gertrude at the end of our play. Is this an accident? She doesn't realize what's going on. Um, Or maybe when she does realize it, it's kind of too late. Or is this a willful decision to end her own life? Yeah, to seek her own salvation, a la Ophelia. Andrew, do you have a conviction about this? Never thought about that question before. So, so, so now I'm going to respond naively, but I'll say this, that if she did it on purpose, it's because of two things. One is potentially she was so angry at Claudius Mm. when she discovered the truth about him or admitted the truth, accepted the truth about him. She was so angry that she wanted to hurt him. And that was a way to do it. The second thing is she was so guilty about her involvement that she wanted to be punished. And so for those reasons, I could imagine her doing it, but I've never before. I didn't know that was a question. So that that's interesting. I, I never thought of it. It's, it's, it's a compelling question, but I've always just seen her as sort of a victim. Yeah. Well, she, yeah, I, I've never thought about it in terms of whether she knew that the cup was poisoned either. I assumed that she didn't. And I agree with Andrew for if, if she was, I mean, to me, it's a really interesting question though, because if she did know and decided to drink, she's, then we have the question of whether that was a courageous act or a cowardly act, right? Like we have another should question. Should she have done that? Especially considering all the things that we just talked about, about, um, about death and, um, and the sacramental structure, it would be then a suicide and she'd be risking her immortal soul and she would die in her sins as her husband did. Right. And, and there's a, that, so that makes it more interesting. Um, but it would also be maybe, as Andrew just said, because she is mm. so highlighted in the play as a victim, um, she, it might be her only way out then, right, right ever to be like an, her only act of personal agency in the play is Mm. in this moment, whether or not it's because she's committing suicide or the other option is that she doesn't know that the cup is poisoned, but it actually is the only time she ever defies Claudius overtly within the play. Andrew, you made the point at the beginning of act four that there might've been a turning point. And maybe from that moment on, she's kind of like a double agent, right? Like she might then in a sense be um, trying to help Hamlet 
by kind of flying under the radar with Claudius. But this is her only act of overt disobedience and rebellion towards a man in the play. And it's Claudius. Yeah. So she, she, this is her, her moment of agency. And what does it do? It leads to her death. Is that irony or is that freedom, right? Is Is Shakespeare setting her free or is she paying yet another consequence um, of her actions? And is this justice mm-hmm. or is it both, right? Is it a rabbit mm-hmm. or a duck mm-hmm. or is it both, right? Is it a rabbit? <laughs> it's a complicated moment, but it is, you know, every time she says, no, my Lord, I will. I'm always like, you go girl. Like you, you don't, but, oh, well, you're about to die. So is this, a, is, is this a defiance that is punished or is it, a, an act of the will that leads to her freedom in the only way she ever could possibly be free. I have seen actresses play Gertrude as defiant, like drinking a toast to Claudius. Yeah, like middle finger exactly, up. Exactly, right, drink this right. Cup, get off my back, I, right? Part of me finds that so satisfying. I mean, I kind of like check the sort of like salvific ramifications of this and just think about it as sort of a a statement against the great devil of the play who is Claudius. It's really satisfying when it's played by that. Again, the salvific aspect of it is troubling, but in that moment, you can, can kind I of comment see on that. Please. Yeah. So Heidi just spent some time expressing the importance of the sacramental view of death and all the implications of that. And when you just use the term salvific, forgive mm-hmm. me, but, all of a sudden, that first line in Act 5, which I never really thought very hard about, is starting to weigh down on me. Again, is she to be buried What's in that line? Mm. What? When, when, she will, when she willfully seeks her own salvation. Is the whole thing that's going on in the play Hamlet, a bunch of huh. people willfully seeking their own salvation? Huh. And then the question becomes, well, if so, or even in order to answer that question... What do we mean? What does salvation include? Right? Because, because to talk, to use the term salvific is, is, that's a 20th century term, I think. And I think it's a Protestant term. The, the, there's Protestantism going on, but it's 16th century Protestantism. And the concept of salvation is inexhaustible in, 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 this, in this era's mind. It's not a, and you don't mean this, I don't think anyway, but it's not a, God declares you righteous, done deal. Okay. Right. Salvation is cosmic, right? So if my earlier argument is that Hamlet from earlier sessions, that Hamlet is, is living, is under the weight of the entire cosmos, political order, social order, moral order, religious order, psychological order, all of that is crashing and burning. Okay. Then is, is what Hamlet's about all of those things being restored and everybody mm. their own way seeking, willfully seeking their, their salvation, right? And if that's the case, then, then Gertrude drinking the cup, you have to ask one proposal I would make to anybody who wants to take this journey is, is Gertrude trying to be saved from what and does it work, right? Mm-hmm. And right, exactly. Trying to be saved from what and does it work? Is Hamlet and what's included in this concept of salvation? Because the main point I'm getting at in all of what I'm thinking about out loud at your expense is salvation is a big concept to these people. Yeah. And it, it, 
not just a judicial decision by God in the spiritual dimension, right? It's total. And so then- It's not just a funeral scene question either. It's not. Right. That drives the question home, right? Mm -hmm. But if all you think about when you think about salvation is what happens after death, then you're stuck with Hamlet's to be or not to be and the front (laughs) of the gravity returns. But, but no, it's okay. If I look after death, what does that tell me about now? What does mm-hmm. that tell me about politics? And what does that tell me about, th- does it matter that the kingdom of heaven is, is, is coming or is that we mm. can go to, you know, so, so it's, it's a, it's a mirror. It's like, it holds a mirror up to nature. Like, you know, maybe heaven is the ultimate art and it's, it's the ultimate mirror being held up to, to, to the human soul and to human society. Because if I were to, this is again thinking of what both of you said earlier. If I were to summarize what I'm what's driven home to me about the moral of the story, which I don't look for, but you know, if I were to do it, I would say that Hamlet is saying to us, "Be serious," mm. and 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 with a, a large exclamation point, and and not in the sense of sober serious, but in the sense of serious. And the, 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 the way we the be difference serious. being what the difference being what Andrew tease out that difference. Well, okay. So, so serious and well, sober made me think that. And then you said something right after I thought that, which I wrote down, which is pay attention. Mm. Okay. So being serious means being receptive to reality. Or if you want to put it in a, in a, in a Christian way, seek the logos, right? Wherever it leads you just see, or even a Socratic way, seek the logos, and you do that by, by receiving reality into your soul, not fighting with it, not rejecting it, not, not denying death, not denying the evil within us, the monster within us, the monster within our neighbor, the true beauty within, but accepting all of reality, which is, inco- which is impossible for us. But that's what Hamlet's saying to us is be serious and, and don't be serious by thinking only sober thoughts. There's a clown there too, but pay attention. Yeah. Right? Pay- and receive reality seek the logo that's that's what i'm that's what's hitting me really hard yeah i want to i want to add to this because you're sparking my thoughts here so aristotle talks about what it means to be a serious person right he says if you're say if you're wanting to play an instrument uses a cithara i'll use the piano if you want to learn to play the piano you could do a couple of things you can either dabble or you could be serious right and 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 it's, if it's the piano, there's not much at stake either way, what? right? But he says, this is Aristotle's point that he makes, like, but he says it's different when you're talking about your, your soul. And he says, you should be a serious human, like be serious about being human the same way that you be serious about playing the piano, Right. And, and then he says, that's why I, this is his introduction to ethics. He's like, that's why I wrote this book. Right. But for serious people. Huh. Right. And um, and I, I love that. Right. I talk to my students about this all the time when I teach Aristotle's ethics. And like this is what it means to be a serious person is to pay attention. And I actually always quote you, Andrew. And I say, like my godfather and mentor, Andrew Kern, says that the most important thing you can learn in life is how to pay attention. Mm. And I think to your point, this is what Hamlet does. This is why Hamlet is a noble mind, Mm -hmm. right? It's not because of his noble actions, but because throughout the entire play, he is a serious person. 
He's serious all the time about being human. He takes seriously, he pays attention, right? And he makes a lot of mistakes. And and the reason why his mistakes are so weighty is because he's a serious person, right? Like I look at the way he treated Ophelia and because I believe this is a noble mind and a noble man, I'd take very seriously the fact that he treated her so unkindly and doesn't ever repent. But it's because I hold him in such high esteem. Yeah, as right. a noble mind because he's serious about being human and he didn't, he, he really, I think he really failed in that way. Right. And so I, I look at that with sober judgment because I take him seriously. Right. Right. If you didn't take him seriously, that, you wouldn't be yes, so disappointed. Like with Polonius, right. I'm like, Oh, whatever. Like that. Guy's right, just, right. Like even when he doesn't, because he's not serious about being human, he's serious about only a tiny sliver of his humanity, mm-hmm. which is just his job. Right. Because he wants to be prestigious. And so I don't, take him that seriously because he's not a serious person in the way we're talking about the word serious. And that is, I think with Hamlet, I like his, the, the actions that he takes fail in some way, many ways Mm. in the play. And I think some of the conclusions that he comes to fail in some ways. And yet he's a serious person and that is noble. That pursuit is noble. But what makes Hamlet, I think, a Christian play versus a classical play is that the pagans tend to put that within Aristotle, I think, plays and some of, some of the pagans tend to put that within these narrower p- parameters, right? They don't really take into account the full weights of human, the human potential for to 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 debase and deprave ourselves. Mm. And with Hamlet, we have the snake in the grass. We have the serpent in the garden. We have Claudius. And Claudius's actions create so much corruption within all three levels of reality, the universal, the public, and the private, right? And, and so these... And so because of that, then all the other people seeking for their own salvation, as you've used that term with what you just said, Andrew, all they're all corrupted by it. I, and I think one of, I'm going to talk about Harry Potter really briefly, because anytime I have a chance to be an apologist for Harry Potter, I, I will take it. So one of the things I love about that whole series and why I think it's super important, super important in the modern contemporary modern literary landscape is that it is a series about the impact of one person's depravity upon Mm. the entire society Mm. and the ramifications for Voldemort's depravity are so far reaching. And she's so unflinching in this children's story about examining that the losses that come to that, the impact on the society that comes from, from just one person's depravity. Right. And, a choice to debase and degrade and distort their own soul and then seek for power from there. That's the same thing I think we get in Hamlet. There's such a similarity between Claudius as the villain and how everybody reacts to that, but they don't know that. They think they're reacting to Hamlet's madness, but it's not. It's Claudius's depravity. Yeah. That is causing this, but they're looking in the wrong place. It's misdirection, right? And so, this is so powerful to me. What you talk about it's is that it's not so clear cut that if you just like follow the ethical thing, you're going to get the right, you know, you're you're going to get the right response to that, and you're going to like be able to build this edit this classical edifice of perfection, right? That's not the way it is. And Hamlet is unflinching in its 
portrayal of that, that even a noble mind, even a person like Hamlet, who's trying to be a serious person, will in the end be just one of a stage littered with dead bodies in the face of the darkness that the human soul is capable of. And yet, dot, 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 Tim, here you go, Fortinbras. <laughs> there is a divinity. There is a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough you them as we will. There's always after, the potential for harmony and resurrection. After the queen drinks the poison, Laertes informs Hamlet that he's also been poisoned through a wound that Laertes inflicted. And Hamlet immediately turns on the king. Then venom to, then venom to thy work. The court calls treason after Hamlet has stabbed uh, Claudius, which, by the way, there's an interesting staging decision here. Everyone calls, calls treason, and yet Hamlet is still able to pick up the, the poison chalice and kind of force feed it to, Laerte, to, to Claudius. Does this mean that the court... Um, willingly stood by while this happened because they they know they know at this point i think that's a great staging question or does hamlet kind of have to fend off the court with his foil i think that's the staging decision that needs to be made i like the idea of the court kind of knowing you know the right man is actually about to get the throne very briefly before his life i like that decision i would probably direct it that way and then we get Hamlet's closing lines. And I think we're going to, we need to close the show with this. Um, he's speaking to Horatio and he's saying goodbye. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while. And in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. The potent poison quite o'ercrows my spirit. I cannot live to hear the news from England, but I do prophesy the election lights on Fortinbras. He has my dying voice, so tell him with the occurrence more and less which have solicited, the rest is silence. Um, you have to read the next line. Now cracks a mm. noble heart. Good night. Good night, sweet prince. And flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Then comes the introduction to Fortinbras and Andrew is made happy by the arrival of Fortinbras. Well, I'm happy because the succession takes place. I'm right. No, I know. I'm teasing you. I know. I'm, I'm absolutely teasing you. It is about the succession taking place. It's more than that, though. It's it's cosmic harmony. You have to have it. I, I absolutely believe if you ended the play without Fortinbras, you leave open the question of despair because the play is so deep. Mm. Well, if I can make support that with an almost completely trivial sounding point, Fortinbras comes from Poland. And if my whole cosmological thing is anything, he's representing... Copernicus and the Copernican, I mean, yeah, the Copernican system, which is, which is a new cosmology, right? So, so he's, so he's, he's politically, you know, uh, restoring the uh, dynasty and bringing order. But, but there's at least a hint there that there's a cosmic harmony as well. 
on a new order. Andrew, you and I have talked about this off the air. I wonder if it might be something for us to follow up on in this podcast. So we have one more podcast, which is the Q&A podcast. Andrew, you and I have talked off the air and let's continue to talk off the air about it, about whether or not we want to have a conversation just, excuse me, just about the kind of cosmological backdrop behind this play, which I think a lot of people would find interesting, not just because it's a Hamlet question, but also because this moment in European history is just fascinating, crucial, and illuminating to how we live today. So if that ends up happening, we'll announce it on the Q&A podcast, which we're going to record soon. But for now, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to these five acts of Hamlet. They've been absolutely delightful and delicious. And I'm grateful, Heidi and Andrew, that you guys were able to join me for this. Honor. Thank you. It's been an honor. With that, uh, we want to ask you, listeners, please go to the Close Reads Facebook page and send us your questions about Hamlet. We would love to field them during the Q&A session. We thank you for joining us. We thank you for being such loyal patrons and supporters of the podcast. And we continue to wish you happy reading. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.